scheme sat on that connection offer for a while didn't instigate things like the protection survey to actually kind of confirm what that point of connection would look like. And by the time that came around, actually it turned out the DNO had offered someone else a connection into that line. They couldn't accommodate both of them. The other project had built out. And so effectively that project had really lost its position because it hadn't progressed things quickly enough. Hello and welcome to the Connectology podcast. Here, Road Knight Taylor's influential team of elite connection specialists and their expert guests help you to better understand distribution and transmission network connections and how to acquire them faster, for less cost and at lower risk. Hi, I'm Catherine Cleary, one of Road Knight Taylor's connectologists, and I'm here this morning uh, with my colleague Nikki Plinger uh, as we talk about the perils and pitfalls to avoid once a grid offer is accepted. Nikki, we've talked a lot over the years about just how much can potentially go wrong with a project uh, post-acceptance. I guess as a first question, do you think most developers underestimate how much effort is required to manage a grid connection once it's been accepted? Yes, certainly. I think in my experience from sitting within developers and also from sitting in uh, in Road Knight Taylor, it's potentially not very appreciated in terms of how long these projects can actually take and how logistically complicated they can be. Also, I think one thing that's potentially not really well understood is how many caveats can be put in grid office um, and how long these can take to bottom out and, and also how risky they can be. So we've called this podcast, Now You've Got a Grid Connection Offer, What Next?, I suppose there's, there's a lot of work that we at Road Knight Taylor do once an offer comes out in the kind of offer review period to get people sort of happy with what they are accepting. But those caveats and clauses you're talking about, actually, quite a lot of that is, is work that you would then pick up post acceptance. Is that right? So what are the kind of top things you would look at once an offer has been accepted? So when we go through the connection offer review process, it normally comes out with quite a lot of questions that we will ask the DNO. Um, some of these can be answered pre-accepting the offer, but a lot of them will have to, uh, the, the DNO will have to essentially go away and investigate them after the offer has been accepted. So one of the big talking points at the moment is National Grid Reinforcement Works. And back in the day, projects would go through what we all called a statement of works at that point. And normally you would get a, a letter back from the DNO and it would say, you know, you've got no uh, additional conditions. Uh, so we've gone and spoken to National Grid, gone through the transmission works assessment and your project has passed the statement of works process. Now, almost everything that we see back has a, a connection date of 2028, 2030, mid 2030s. So that's something that developers would want to know about as soon as possible. In the past, the DNOs haven't had particularly good or consistent processes of actually getting these things submitted. You know, some have had Appendix Gs, some have actually been more... Um, more conscientious, let's say, about submitting their uh, their mod apps and therefore taking that project through the project progression process. So now we've actually got the DNOs, or, or at least some of them, to, to commit to a more consistent process. And, and this is something that we as Road Knight Taylor contributed to as part of the uh, industry advisory panels that we set up. So a lot of the DNOs now will commit to a three-month process of submitting mod apps. So I think we've got UKPN, SSE and NGET at the very least to commit to doing mod apps every three months. So at the very least, you're going to have a little bit more um, of a known timeline with those project progressions, as opposed to them potentially taking, you know, up to two years as some of them have in the past. Yeah, wow. So 
we're getting better, but this is still stuff which takes a year post acceptance. It's not something which is going to get bottomed out in a couple of weeks during a kind of offer review process. That's that's your your view. Oh yeah, and and to be honest, at the moment because National Grid are are also so busy, they are taking quite a while to actually clock start their project progressions. So even once the DNO has submitted to National Grid, you know, we've got a delay of sometimes several months with um, clocks on project progressions. Then once they've got that three month process to evaluate, they will then come back to the DNO. And we're, we're also seeing delays on the other end as well. So where the DNO and National Grid have got a solution, but they're not agreeing on it um, and are not having particularly quick conversations about that. I, I guess it's all about ascertaining what the potential risk is going to be on that as early as possible, based on, you know, our knowledge of what's going on in the network already, what's already happened, and on our sort of more conversations with the DNOs. And I suppose you, you and I have obviously been through this process a number of times and we've worked together on quite a lot of schemes uh, as they've been built out into construction but what might not be obvious to uh, a developer coming at these projects or these connection offers afresh is that that process is not perhaps a hands-off one you know that as the customer and um, often this is something that, that you have to drive so to kind of actively manage the DNO and their delivery team um, in you know making those project progression submissions but also perhaps doing some other works you know perhaps uh, not just on the transmission impact side of things but in terms of the, the local distribution works and um, so what, what are the other kind of things that you would tend to look at uh, post acceptance? In the first Say, for simplicity, you've got a 132 kV project. So a lot of our projects are 132 kV now. The development process for these are quite a long period, especially if you've got an EIA with planning. So the first 18 months or so, you would probably be working towards getting your project into planning, getting land sorted. Um, so developers aren't going to want to spend a huge amount of money here. But there are several things that you can normally do with offers to de-risk them at a fairly low financial cost uh, in these periods. So you've got caveats in offers. One of the favourites is we can connect you into a substation providing that the board is extensible room to connect you and we can get into the substation, we can get access. And if, you have, if you've got an overhead line connection or a cable connection, you also need to figure out how you're going to do that connection, especially with overhead line connections into 132s. This can be incredibly complex connections. So what's quite often worth doing is spending that initial money in the first year or so to ascertain what that point of connection is going to look like. You also need to have a look at your communication strategy. So comms on different parts of the network are quite different um, and DNOs have got uh, varying policies in terms of what types of communications they want for their protection. And these are quite low cost items. You know, a comms survey might cost four or five thousand pounds Tower surveys, like the initial concept designs, can cost up to 20, but they really are worth doing because if you need a tower replacement, you can then go and potentially investigate other point of connection options to see if you can go somewhere else. And then that might need additional land negotiations, different cable routes, etc. And it really is so much easier to get these things done earlier rather than trying to think about them six months before you want to connect. That makes a lot of sense. And I think also is backed up probably by the project experience that that we've had. I, I guess we talked about the kind of need for this podcast and it probably comes out of a few horror stories that, that Nikki <laughs> and I could share. But um, I think not just in terms of confirming the sort of cost elements and timeframe elements of a connection, but even confirming its technical viability. Um, I mentioned, Nikki, that we'd had one scheme which we saw, uh, you know, a DNO offer a, a TEED point of connection into an EHV circuit 
that scheme sat on that connection offer for a while, didn't instigate things like the protection survey to actually kind of confirm what that point of connection would look like. And by the time that came around, actually, it turned out the DNO had offered someone else a connection into that line. They couldn't accommodate both of them. The other project had built out. And so effectively, that project had really lost its position because it hadn't progressed things quickly enough. So that's a bit of a nuanced element and perhaps a kind of worst case scenario. But but is there a scenario here where actually, you know, you, you effectively lose the opportunity to connect in the way that's that's written out in your connection offer because you don't progress things? Potentially. It's often questionable as to whether the DNO should have offered that to both parties in the first place. But in my experience, the DNO sort of they they will put effort into the projects that they're very aware of and that they've got a lot of engagement on. So some developers, you know, sort of get a grid offer, think, oh yeah, brilliant, we've got a grid offer. Says we can connect in, you know, 24 months. That 24 months is a lot of effort on your part if you want to go and connect at that time in that time period. If you're liking this podcast so far, you may want to pop over to the Connectology page on Road Knight Taylor's website and sign up to the Connectology newsletter for much more know-how, insight and thought leadership in electricity network connections. The link to this is in the description. Don't miss out on any of the articles, explainers, videos, webinars and podcasts that Road Knight Taylor's Connectologists share to give you an edge and help you overcome your grid frustrations. Okay, so uh, so protection design, that sounds like quite a fundamentally important thing. Um, what are the other kind of big ticket items that really affect the way a connection gets built out that you can sort of look at early? You mentioned uh, comms surveys. Yes, so communication surveys, especially where you've got um, a connection in quite a rural area, needs to be done as soon as possible. So the DNOs can't actually engage directly with, uh, with BT. They have to go through a company called Exponential E. So... If you are going to use fiber for your communications, then you need to get fiber from your site to the nearest connection point, which is normally in a public highway. Um, from sort of recent conversations that we've had with the DNOs, these surveys can take a significant amount of time to be undertaken. And then the works can take years and years to actually be completed, which is obviously very frustrating for everyone involved. Having a better idea about some of those elements would help a developer inform their own development programme quite significantly. You sort of mentioned 24 months of, of, of really hard work to get a connection energised. But from what you're saying, it sounds like actually there could be quite a few things which meant that uh, one to two KV connections in particular you know, took longer than that, even with the best efforts. Oh, certainly. I mean, what, one to two KV connections probably realistically will take at least four years, especially because of the development timeframes up front and then because of the lead times that we're seeing on equipment. And that's four years from signing on the dotted line, you know, accepting your offer and then beginning to move forwards with things. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, four years is, is potentially quite optimistic as well, especially with, with all the complications that we're seeing around national grid and the reinforcement timescales. In terms of communications as well, there's quite a lot of different ways that you can do this. So one of the projects I saw after having the, uh, the line of sight surveys done, which again, took a significant amount of time purely because of the weather. These line of sight surveys have to be done by um, the telecoms team. So they have to go out, essentially go up a big pole and see where the, um, how high the tower has to be in order to get to the next point of communications. And on one of the schemes we had, it turned out that we need a 25 meter mast. And that takes a long time to get through planning. You almost have dual avenues 
of what, what ways you could go with this. So at that point, we sort of had assumed that we could get away with a fairly small mast because it was quite a flat area. But then we needed this 25 metre comms mast. And then it was like, OK, so we'll progress this. But we're also going to progress this other thing in tandem. So we're going to do an innovation project with a DNO or we're going to go and see if we can get a different connection via some other piece of infrastructure or in the case of 132 kv lines it might be that you actually restring the fiber on a line if there's no fiber or if that stopped working and honestly that process takes a lot longer than you would ever imagine that it takes and it can add significant costs to a project as well so i suppose land land and planning risk um for uh, the dno's non-contestable works you know are, are just as significant as as they are for for the developer's end generation connection. And that would apply presumably not just to new comms masts, but um, if there were third party land rights required for the POC, for example. Um, so, so looking at things like that, like the kind of practical land planning construction, constructability elements of the project sounds quite important. Oh, that, that can have a huge impact. So the DNO will normally attempt to give you a point of connection um, on your land holding, if that's at all available. If not, they will give you a point of connection um, somewhere else and you'll need to figure out those third party works. Sometimes you have situations where they've actually given you a more beneficial point of connection in terms of, say, if you had a tower connection, they would give you an angle tower connection. So you could then actually um, connect without a, a tower replacement, but that angle tower might be on someone else's land. <laughs> um, so if you then can't get those land rights, then you also needs to be having a look at potentially other connections on your own land, other connections on other land. If there's a cable, then connections in public highway. It's those sort of multiple uh, streams of investigation that you need to have, I think, in, in post acceptance. I always like to have at least a plan B, if not a plan C and D most of the time for just the considerations of, of what can go wrong. And sometimes land landowners can change, the situations can change throughout the throughout the development process. So it really is worth having those uh, several contingencies in place, I think. I think you've probably got connection project managers nodding all over the place and directors quaking in their boots with a plan D. Um, but but that that does just go to show, I think, that there is this huge element of complexity in the delivery of a project, which is perhaps simplified at the stage when you know it's it's just an acceptance of a grid offer. Um, and I think then there's a view, you've got grid, but actually from what you're saying, Nikki, I think the message from today is that that grid offer is not a watertight promise to connect you on the date that it says um, in the arrangement that's shown in a drawing. It's just a first starting point. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And, and this is why I like to talk to the DNOs as soon as possible after we get an accepted offer. There's a sort of a formal meeting a lot later on called a kickoff meeting. And, and that would almost suggest that that's the first time you talk to them. I'd never let, never ever let that be the first time that I speak to a DNO because that would suggest that we have a, an ICP on board uh, if ICPs are doing the contestable works. When we have an accepted offer, ideally you would have an introduction meeting with the DNO. Um, not only can you ask those questions that have come out of the connection offer of you, but it's also an introduction for you to the DNO. So the DNO knows you're actually serious about building this project we're all human we all like to see the people that we're we're working with and we all actually want to know that we're committed to doing the same thing and getting to the same end point early engagement is essential 
in your view, Nikki, do you think it makes a difference whether a customer accepts on a, a non-contestable only basis and gets gets their own ICP to do the contestable works or whether the DNO delivers the full scheme? Does it make a difference how much you have to, as a developer, you have to kind of drive and manage this process? Yes, I think it does. I think if the, if, um, if the DNO is doing the full works, then they will have sort of different teams allocated to the project. They will also, in my experience, take more of a project management role because they have to drive that whole process. You know, there's no other sort of external responsibility for that. You know, they do their own design. They, you know, they're doing the cable routes. They're doing all of those land negotiations. Whereas when it's with an ICP, really that design stage, you know, the DNA will do their detailed design and then you're waiting on the, on the ICP to do theirs. Uh, and that can be a fairly long process. And then at the end of that, obviously, you actually have get financial close and then you can order kits and actually progress from there into construction. But there's benefits and uh, disadvantages to doing both, I think. I've always quite enjoyed working with ICPs. I think you can find quite a lot of, uh, of innovation when you're working with ICPs. I think there's quite a lot of different ways to do things that DNOs wouldn't necessarily champion. And the customer experience can often be quite different um, if you've got perhaps a slightly more kind of commercially responsive party who you're directly contracting with as an ICP. Yeah, certainly. It's good to have other people in this process as well. You know, ICPs have got experience with doing multiple different connections, multiple different DNOs. And having a really good ICP, I found, has been really, really beneficial in that development process. And it makes managing parties potentially slightly more complex, but also a lot more rewarding in terms of how you actually get through the process. It's also a lot more common, I, I suppose, for the scale of connections that we're looking at. Um, generally speaking, these these kind of EHV generation connections will have quite a significant scope of contestable works. And, and it's quite common for our developer clients to appoint an ICP. Final question then from me, Nikki. Do you think with everything that's going on at the moment, uh, you sort of talk quite a lot about the transmission impact complexity. Has it got harder? Is managing post acceptance connections more of a big deal today because delivery of these schemes has got harder? I think so, yes. I also think that the schemes have obviously got a lot bigger. Mm. So in the sort of heydays of subsidy projects, 132KV schemes were very rare. Um, you know, it was a lot of 11, a lot of 33KV schemes, which, and also we didn't have the sort of other conditions around, you know, the longer lead times, around the transmission reinforcements and everything. Purely on a scale basis, 132KV connections, yes, they can be a lot more sort of financially viable, but also the complexity surrounding them can be so much more challenging. Um, logistically, it's obviously a lot more difficult to replace a 132KV tower and, and also get to that sort of financial stage where you're happy to order a 132KV transformer, 132KV switch gate. You know, the investment into these things is massive. You know, it, it really outweighs what we had to do with sort of 11KV and 33KV connections. So we have a much more complex network than we used to have 10 years ago. And it's incredibly positive that we have that because we have a lot more renewables connected to the grid, but we also have a lot more uh, system complexity. So we have active network management. So as opposed to just the DNOs modeling a generator on worst case, we now have constraints in place. All of those connections with constraints have to be managed to make sure that they don't push any of the, uh, uh, the kit over its thermal limits or anything like that. Also because of the amount of generation that we have connected to the networks now, it's a lot more complex in terms of, uh, of protection requirements. You know, we've got much higher fault levels. We've got much more actually connected into our networks that the DNOs have to manage. The magic words uh, G99 in a conversation earlier, um, which it's definitely true. I think I, I can 
jump in on this one, Nikki, because I've <laughs> I've had the privilege, possibly possibly the the, the punishment of few of the early schemes sort of some of the first G99 large scale connections through the compliance process and that was a you know a completely different beast to G59 uh, you know sort of in the pre 2018 days and um, so even once you've done all that amazing work um, in terms of the deliverability of the scheme, constructability, getting everything ordered um, and actually it going into construction, then at the final end, prior to being allowed to energise, there is now a significant additional burden on the paperwork side um, and in terms of technical compliance requirements for the generators. So that's probably uh, something for another podcast, I imagine, that we can sink our teeth into G99 compliance. Uh, but for now, thank you very much, Nikki, for chatting through the, the perils of post-acceptance with me. And uh, we hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Connectology podcast. If you found it helpful, please share it with any of your colleagues or connections you think may be interested. And please do subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your content. You can find out more about our services at roadnighttaylor.co.uk, link in the description, where you can also sign up to our free Connectology newsletter for more news and thought leadership in network connections. If, during this podcast, you found yourself wondering what it would be like to have a Roadnight Taylor Connectologist in your life, please do email laura at roadnighttaylor.co.uk to find out how their game-changing skills and insight can change the game for you too.